Hello and welcome on The Barricades. This is a podcast produced by Eastern European journalists and academics. My name is Maria Cernat. I am an academic based in Bucharest. I am your host and the co-host of the show is Bojan Stanislavski, a Bulgarian-born Polish journalist joining us from Warsaw. Hi, Boyan. And uh, we have today uh, Yuri Smother from OnePlus One and the uh, frequent guest and friend of the show, Arto Artimian, an academic who spends time in Bulgaria, the United States, where he teaches and he analyzes what happened in terms of uh, socialism, uh, social critique. And uh, I'm very happy to uh, be here with you again discussing the anti-communist uh, left and how we should advance and move beyond this very simplistic interpretation of the left being something clean, something neat, something not very aggressive, something not very revolutionary, uh, a, B- a-, a ABS theory Anything but socialism, actually, something that doesn't really challenge the status quo, but offers a safe space for those who are disappointed in the conservatism of their parents and of the ruling elites, as Boyan said in the previous segment. A safe space, a safe bubble, where people who actually have generational problems are teenagers in search of an identity may find a place, and they call it politics. Now, how do we move beyond this caricature? How do we move beyond uh, the idea that somebody comes to you and says, oh, I know that in Romania real socialism was really bad from 45 to 89 uh, until Ceausescu was shot. Uh, but uh, still, uh, I am a socialist. I mean, this, this really doesn't make any, any kind of sense. And, uh, to respond briefly to the points being made in a previous segment of our show, I would say that we should immediately, immediately stop uh, discussing human rights according to the definition given by the Western powers. Because if we discuss it only from this perspective, we stand no chance in advancing ideas that would put forward the achievements of the socialist uh, regimes in uh, Eastern Europe. Just like Arto said, we should abandon the liberal perspective it is not the conservatives who are the most dangerous here, but the, the liberals, I think they are the most dangerous and the most, uh, the most dangerous for the leftist ideas because leftists uh, tend to be seduced by liberal rhetoric when they discuss, for instance, human rights. I am about to write an article saying just how crazy it is to imagine that you can may have a functioning democracy in a village of Romania. Recently, a very interesting writer published a book describing realities from Romania's villages. She's very talented, Natalia Onofrei, and she describes a, 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 a situation where we almost had 
a pro-Western backed and uh, a very pro-Western uh, uh, party, political party, trying to make Romania, uh, we have the saying, make Romania a country like outside. Of course, not a country like Pakistan, but a country like France, a country like Great Britain. We have this aspirational ideals of transforming Jeff, Romania Jeff, into Jeff, France <laughs> yes, and uh, Denmark and all the rest. We have all these ideas about how the Eastern, you know, countries are backward and stupid and how our enlightened brothers in the West might provide us with just the kind of uh, recipes for, for success and progress. And, and there is a, an extremely funny episode in the book that I'm going to translate into English, just a short excerpt, when they try to organize a a protest and you see that all this melting pot of poverty all sorts of informal relations all sorts of gossip that make it impossible to solve problems through democratic means of building civic cooperation and exercising power through protest they try to organize a protest they try to gather somebody uh, who is oppressed, but then they have the, the elderly man there who is also a veteran of the secret services who says, who is beating their wives, who is never going to come to protest because they are torturing their kids, they are stealing from the other neighbor, they are um, relatives of somebody who's hired by the mayor, and in a very funny way, the author describes this very, very complex of informal relations that are powered by a backward society and mainly by poverty that makes it impossible to have a functional democracy in a context like this. And I think this is crucial if we want to discuss, uh, you know, human rights, uh, we want to discuss progress and all the rest. We have these discussions who are meaningful in downtown Bucharest. There, where we have people hired for the corporations, living in urban centers, it may, you know, ring a bell. But for the rest of Romania, this is plain nonsense <laughs> because poverty and backwardness is powering a system of uh, you know, like a pyramid of informal relations that make it impossible to even think of a functional democracy and, and human rights. And this is why it is important to abandon this perspective and keep thinking that, that, that the uh, economic elites and political elites will somehow enlighten the enlighten the, the poor people of Romania and bring them closer to human rights. It's not a question of information of education. It is a question of another basic human rights, the right to work, the right to own your house, the right to not to be exploited, the right to have a saying in uh, uh, the production, you know, to have the economy operated in a more democratic manner, like Richard Wolff said it many times, and he said it also on our program. These are basic rights that we completely ignore, and we keep trying to shove down the, the people's throats an idea of human rights that functions only if you have a basic economic security. You know, you have a basic 
shelter uh, on your head. You can, I, can I just quickly respond become... to that before you go? Because Maria has to go, just a disclaimer here. So I just quickly yeah. want to respond to that when you're still here. Because I think it's very important. And that's, again, something that many people on the left don't quite understand. And when they get obsessed uh, or when they obsess over authoritarianism and deficits of democracy and all the rest of it, well, authoritarianism is often precisely function of the economic um, of the economic uh, uh, failures or economic problems. Okay, let's put it that way. Think of a household, and then let's try and extrapolate mm-hmm. it, you know, to a to a broad entity like a country or I don't know a community. Now, in families which are rich, you if you have authoritarianism, then it's only ideologically driven. Like, I don't know, the father or the mother or someone thinks that they have to dominate. And that's why by exercising their ideology, they would beat up their kids or, I don't know, uh, exercise some kind of repression, oppression, or so on and so forth. But uh, by and large, in Europe at least, okay, or in Eastern Europe, to be more precise, when the families are rich, then there is less authoritarianism. This is what sociological, uh, what sociological mm-hmm. research uh, has proven, uh, so far at least. So that, you know, rich families, less authoritarianism. Now, why is there more authoritarianism in, uh, in poorer families? Well, that's very simple because resources are scarce. So when you have four children and, you know, in, in, and, and all of the four children want, let's say, I don't know, a chocolate bar, and there are, there are only two bars of chocolate in the fridge or wherever in the drawer. What, what happens is like one kid goes there. In a, let, let's let's imagine again like the, the rich family. There's an endless, infinite amount of chocolate bars in the drawers. So every kid, whatever they want, they can go open the drawer, take one chocolate bar, eat it, and be happy. The second kid comes, the fourth kid, the fifth kid, whatever, and they can you know they can take turns at the drawer eating chocolate bars. No problem, right? But in a in a family where there are only two chocolate bars and four or five kids wanting them, then the first kid that is going to approach the draw, someone's going to go like, hey, it's not for you. You had it two days ago. Oh, my God. Authoritarianism, microaggression, you know, end of, end of the world, basically. Right. Wow. So this is, this is the thing. And those countries like, you know, uh, Russia and then Soviet Union, Bulgaria, Poland, uh, Romania. Let's be honest about it. Okay. Those were very poor countries and very primitive economies, okay? And, you, you know, you can say whatever you like about Czechoslovakia, about China, about this or that, abuse or something like that. One, one example, for example, which, one example, for example, sorry about this, one example which is often being brought up is the so-called Holodomor. You, you've heard about that, I'm sure. Like, you know, the communists took power. You call them a very, very sorry. Wait, 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 wait. So, in, 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 like, the communists took power in the Soviet, in Russia, Soviet Union then, and immediately a famine was created. Now, let me tell you this. Guys, the Bolsheviks, they've ended the famines. It was the last famine, okay? What do you do? What was the purpose of life when you were a Galician uh, peasant? It was to die occasionally of famine. Of, that was famines happened every year for the last I don't know how many you know maybe a hundred years maybe more than that you know that was a historical tradition of the region famines every year and the Bolsheviks have put an end to it under their rule under their reign there was one more one last famine that occurred in this region but the Bolsheviks have put uh, have ended this you know they have not caused it. 
They have inherited a system which they were not able to put in place, which they were not able, sorry, to reform to the extent that they wished, okay, that they had wished, in order to prevent this Holodomor at this particular point in time when they were in power. And let's not forget that the Soviet Union, Soviet Russia, you know, they were invaded by about 20 armies, okay, since 1918. And they had a horrible civil war, by the way. So, yeah. They, some things, you know, some problems that they've inherited, and there were many of them, well, they slipped through the cracks. You know, they were not able to, to take care of everything mm-hmm. at once. So, and then, you know, when you come to talk, uh, when people come to talk to me about, oh, but in China they have this, in China they have that, I'm not putting forward China as a model for Bulgaria, Poland, Romania, United States, France, or Australia. China says openly and, and made this point, and Chinese officials have made this point many times, we are building a socialism with Chinese characteristics. Let, they, they're not enforcing it on anyone, let alone me. I'm not enforcing it on anyone. What I'm trying to encourage people is let's invent or let's think about or let's just start a discussion at least about socialism with <coughs> Romanian characteristics, with Bulgarian characteristics. And we have a model in the past that we could use. I'm not saying we should repeat it. I'm not saying we should copy it. I'm not saying we should, you know, apply it one-to-one. I actually think that those people who are actively into this, that, you know, so Soviet Union will come back and, you know, socialism will be as once, that's that's not going to happen. I mean, it's not... It's not really materialistic thinking. So it'll be if, humane, any, if it'll, anything it'll, is going to happen... It'll be humane socialism versus... Guys, guys I have yeah. to go. That's Sorry. That's, I will write the article, the article where I will translate that short excerpt just saying how democracy is functioning in the Romanian village because it's... it's truly very funny and exceptional right. and I will share it with you and the viewers and uh, I'll see you in the next segment of our show thanks so thanks. much yes, and this and, and will be the first of many conversations which is going to include which will include uh, uh, Maria so uh, going continuing on with what uh, Boyan says and Arto I, I, I want your response because I think now is the time where we smash the western leftists <laughs> Where we smash the anti-communist leftists, and I know that's even going to piss off a lot of my fellow uh, comrades and uh, and and friends. But hey, we have to. We really do. Yeah, okay, have to. okay. Let me let me just say this. Let me yes. just say this uh, with regards to that. I'm not. I, you know, I, I'm very dissatisfied with what the left with the past record with Western left's past record. Okay, last. 20 years at least, even more than that. But let's just focus on the current history. So I've said it many times. I'm not going to repeat myself here. I, I agree with Arto, what he said in the previous segment, that I think their record, you know, to say the least, is rather dubious, <laughs> probably rather useless. I mean, I can't quite see how I can apply any of their, you know, any of their uh, constructs or any of their notions in, in my in my. In my daily life as a campaigner, as a journalist, or as, as, as a person who actively fights for the socialist cause to the extent that is possible for me. So I think we can just leave them aside. And I think it sort of circles back to the beginning of our program. Because, you know, you said, Yuri, that the left has to break with this, uh, you know, I'm quoting from memory. It might have not been the, the, the exact words that you use, but it has to break with anti-communism. And it's past time for the left to finally get over this and so on and so forth. Well, yeah, I guess if they really want to, if they really want to 
participate in the political struggle, I guess that would be the case, right? So we've had this and that mistakes in our past. We should move on. We should create something and we should look forward. We should look into the future. But the question is whether they really want to do that. Now, as for myself, as for you, Yuri, as for Maria, for most of our audience, for Arto, for the friends of the show that have been many times in this program, we don't have to move on. We've moved on long ago. We've got everything in place, you know, organized in our uh, sort of political consciousness. So it's not really a problem for us. And it's a problem for those people who are in this. And the question is, why are they there? Because if they really want to get out of this weird place where they are, and weird even by our Eastern European standards, I want to say, weird groups, weird conglomerations of even weirder people who, when, you know, when you see them together somewhere like, you know, particularly in Eastern Europe, it's very visible. Like when those modern leftists, when they go out, when they gather, congregate somewhere because they want to have a happening, a demonstration, a rally or whatever, then people, you know, go there. And for them, it's more of an aesthetical experience than anything even remotely close to politics because they suddenly see a bunch of people who look very strange. And that's fine. I'm not against that. You know, when I used to be a teenager, I used to dress myself in ways that people would look strange at me. <laughs> and, you know, and I would be proud of it that I stand against the society. But I was 15. You know, and now we have people who are like overgrown children who are pretending to be in politics, who are doing all those things which I've already listed out in my intervention uh, in the second segment. And it doesn't have to do with anything which can be regarded as serious. That's why I think and, and, and this is another uh, another response to you, Yuri. I'm not a pessimist. I'm a pessimist about those people. I'm a pessimist about my ex I'm pessimist about my ex comrades. I'm pessimist about my the, the former environments, left environments that I've that I have from where I, I'm, I'm getting this bitter experience that I'm sharing with you. I'm very pessimistic about them, and I'm sometimes sad about it because I invested a lot of time and effort and energy and personal resources in order to push those organizations that I participated in forward, and I failed, and now I failed. I know what was the reason that I failed. Uh, and, and that's true. I am sad and bitter about it, and I'm very pessimistic. But otherwise, otherwise, other than that, I am very optimistic. I, I think that socialism, scientific socialism, communism, call it whatever you like, is profoundly about optimism and progress and a belief and the belief about historical progress, uh, belief in historical progress and belief in people achieving through the means of their own collective capacity a new system where we can thrive, where we can all have happy lives and where we can use our presence in the material world, world to the full, where we can really have good life. But in order to, to, to be able to even think of getting there, we have to ask ourselves the fundamental questions. What is a good life? What kind of system do we want? How do we get there? Those are difficult philosophical political matters which you need seriousness for in order to be able to tackle them. And as long as you don't, you know, as, as, you, as long as you don't sort of pass the point where, you know, all your personal uh, kind of, you know, your personal experience, your personal kind of sense of place in the world is less important than the collective work and the commitment of the community you work in, it's not going to be possible for you to achieve the kind of uh, levels of seriousness that you require in order to participate in politics. Uh, so, like, so, sorry for talking so long on this in the previous segment. I want Arto to, to give Arto a chance to also comment. Well, uh, 
Artso, uh, I you know d- d- lots to respond to Boronsley, but let's but but but, but let's but, but let's but let's move on to another stage in this conversation, which is uh, which 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 is which is the anti-communist uh, leftism, which I think has polluted and has kneecapped our movements both in the West and they're doing the same thing in Eastern uh, Europe. It's a kind of colonization what the uh, Western left is uh, doing in Eastern uh, Europe, which is, you know, the, 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 the big hero, you know, amongst like the Western left and even amongst the Eastern European anti-communist left is George Orwell, who wrote this fantastic, it is a good book. Animal Farm is a really good book, but he wrote this book, Animal Farm about, you know, about, about the tyranny of the Soviet Union. And then he does this, this book, 1984, where apparently the Soviet Union was a sexless uh, society that you get, you couldn't even have like affections uh, for uh, one another. And okay. Like, yes, there was some tyranny. There was a lot of tyranny under, uh, under, you know, under Stalin amongst all of those, uh, Eastern uh, European systems, but but it's weird though that that the Western left, which is on which you know with with COINTELPRO with the FBI's uh, war on you know on on on, on, on the radical movements, uh, the Red Scare, the the, the McCarthy period, like you know, I mean, I mean, I hate to spoil people's you know lionization of George Orwell, but George Orwell was part of the British deep state and his last writings was, was, was this list of all sorts of leftists and communists that should be investigated and the British states and the U S states should suppress. Charlie Chaplin was on that list. Uh, Paul Robeson was on that list. So, I think that needs to be studied. I think that needs to be studied. And again, you know, somebody like Albert Camus, I'm not, you know, denying that, you know, that there, that, 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 that the Soviet Union, that there was some atrocities that, you know, that, that existed. But I think for an Eastern European audience, I think they would do much better to study somebody like Jean-Paul Sartre and other Western communists who weren't, who, who, who didn't do that thing of over, compensating that I'm a good leftist because I can criticize the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union is a rival imperialist to to America or the ridiculous discourse that you see on uh, China. So I, I I just wanted your yeah, I'm I'm just curious, you know, your you know, your you know, your thoughts on the, that. Well, I mean, like Boyan said, I think this is if we really want to be serious about um our study of politics, you know, between in the big fight of the last of the long 20th century, you know, between uh, the Soviet alternative and the capitalist imperial core. If we want to be serious about it, then we have to ask uh, really uncomfortable questions, uncomfortable questions for the new left, you know, the one that originated in the 60s, both in the West and in the Soviet system, which then is closely associated, it's essentially liberal in its in its deep core philosophical essence. But before that, just one second on Orwell, you're absolutely right, Yuri. Orwell was an agent of the British Empire, of the British state. And he was a Fabian socialist. And Fabian socialists are not revolutionary socialists. They're not transformative socialists. Um, and Orwell was a brilliant writer in the service of the British Empire. It's very simple. So all of his work which has literary value uh, politically should be read in the sense of 
his, I think his primary purpose was to uh, <clears throat> wage ideolog intellectual ideological struggle against the Soviet, uh, Soviet literature and, and Soviet politics. So I think in that sense, Orwell is definitely not a role model for a, for a transformative socialist, for me at least. And he's, in fact, he's a very smart uh, and damaging and effective political enemy. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't read him. We should read everyone. I read Heidegger right now and I find it very informative against, and he's affecting my thinking about liberals a lot more than any of the uh, uh, left philosophers that, that I've read, read in the last 20 years. I mean, Heidegger, you know, member of the Nazi party briefly before he left because he disagreed with the Nazis as well and their politics is a much more devastating critique of capitalism, critic of capitalism than let's say, uh, I don't know, Zizek or something, you know, and a much better philosopher, one of the great thinkers of the, of, of the last 500 years. If we want to think about somebody who's trying to understand how people think and how we don't think and how capitalist commercialism uh, and kind of alienation destroys thinking. You know, Heidegger's sentence was, you know, science doesn't think. Modern science doesn't think. What are the implications of that? All transformative socialists should engage with that question, given how dominant science is today, right? And we live in an age of socialized cybernetics. That's the dominant ideology of today. Liberalism today can be better called socialized cybernetics. You know, I think, so in other words, if you really ask the tough question about anti-communism, you know, like Boyan said, I think, transformative socialists or new communists today or the new communist movement of today should ask questions like uh, what happens to the transformation of political subjectivity in, in capitalist societies like ours when we're experiencing the transition from citizens as the basic political unit into essentially what can be called biological beings with human capacities, which is what the super alienated proletariat is treated as today by, uh, by the capitalist class. Right. Two things, two so, things. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Go yeah. Ahead. So I just want to say another difficult question. What is the phenomenon, the political phenomenon of Stalinism? I mean, is it possible in any other way to break in Europe in the 1920s and 30s to break the back of, like Boyan said, the total baggage of inherited horrible politics that the early Soviet state inherited from the Russian Empire? How do you break the bag, the back of inherited class formations, habits of daily life that affect all social classes of a very, very unequal, horrific, near-feudal society? How do you, at the same time, fight the increasingly dominant notion of consumerism that's coming in from the advanced capitalist West? The sanctity of private individual property? Well, maybe you do that through forced collectivization. Maybe you break back the notions of private individual liberal property by forcing people to live, creating the conditions for people to live in communal buildings for 30 years or to make the opera very cheap and to make high art like symphony orchestras essentially free. And you force people to go there by carting factory workers to go to the opera or you, you ask Mayakovsky, your leading poets, go to the factories and read poems as political work in order to bring poetry to everybody, because every human being can appreciate poetry. It shouldn't just be the domain of the educated elites. That's also Stalinism. <laughs> wow. So if so, we think about it this way, yeah. you know, Stalin's legacy... And winning the Second World War is also Stalinism. What's that? Winning the Second World and War. And winning the Second also... War, which is a small thing, right? <laughs> like, right. So, so in other words, against United Europe, which we hear again, that formulation, United Europe. So I think 
the phenomenon of Stalinism as a political project. Now, would Trotsky would have done differently if he won the internal fight? I'm not so sure. I think Trotsky would have executed at least some of the, you know, the five-year plans, etc. But the point is, the political history of Stalinism from a leftist, from a revolutionary socialist point of view, is not definitively written and digested by people. Isaac Deutscher's biography definitely is a good start. Uh, a lot of work that's coming out from Russia, you know, post-Soviet space today is, is also very interesting. I'm sure there, you know, Katie Churkhoff, you know, the great, she's a, our contemporary. She's a Russian uh, a philosopher. We got to get her on this show, by the way. We got to get her. She's written a great book on, on, uh, on, on what Soviet, uh, Soviet well, culture is. If I could plug somebody from the Western left, Michael Perenzi. Yeah, but I, I you know, I, I'm not sure if he's still... In health-wise, capable. Unfortunately, yes, un- un- unfortunately not. But his books are always going to be well in, 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 until we die from, from from climate change and accidental nuclear war. His books are going to be immortal. And black shirts and uh, black shirts and red uh, red flags. Was it? Yes, yeah. that's a must. That's a must read yeah. for our Eastern European audience and even those who, yeah. and even those in the West who want to move beyond anti-communist leftism. But before we end this segment, we still we, we still have. We still have a few time. Uh, we, we still have some time left. Yeah, we have one minute, Yuri. Okay, so go ahead. Oh, okay. Uh, well, okay. Well, this will be the first of many conversations. But then I just want, I just, I just want this one. I just want a response to this, which is: Do you think the reason why it's so difficult, at least in the West, to move beyond anti-communist leftism, is because? So much, uh, you know. There's there, there's lots of problems with you know you know with, with the left in the U.S. You know, there's those who keep co-opting the uh, the people power movements to vote for the Labour Party in Australia, Britain. There's those who keep uh, saying that you need to vote Democrats in Canada. There's the problems with you know the Liberal Party as an institution and then the NDP, which often engages in a lot of anti-communism, leftism. Do you think that the re- do you think that when it comes to when we talk about Eastern Europe and when we talk about the counter-revolution, that it's difficult to move beyond anti-communism leftism because so much of those unions, so much of those leftists engaged in helping and in, 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 in doing the heavy lifting of imperialism. And if we look at Afghanistan, that anti-communism leftism has destroyed Afghanistan. We should have let the, commun- the, the communists in Afghanistan, what their Soviet backers eradicate the backwards Islamist society that they were trying to eradicate, like Ataturk tried to do in Turkey, which is also another thorny issue, which we can't get too much into. But do you think that's why, you know, we're still kneecapped with anti-communism leftism? Because if we really look back, and if those on the left in the West, uh, you know, if, if we really look back on it, they actually played a huge role in, do, in, 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 in doing the heavy lifting of imperialism, that's the uh, you know United States and its allies. Okay, look, I will I will respond very briefly, literally fifteen seconds, and then Arto, you get one minute, and we finish the program. Okay, so uh, first, I want to say that there is one very simple or, or easily detectable, in my opinion, reason why the left is so anti-communist in the West. Well, because the Western system requires anti-communist left. That's that's very that's just as simple as that. Like, you know, the system creates the architecture creates good condition for breeding this kind of political currents. OK, that's that, that's and it makes it easy for them. It you know, you have non-governmental organizations, grants, subsidies, all kinds of nonsense 
for uh, the kind of left that is not dangerous, that is not posing any danger to any of the architects, the strategists of the system that is in place there. So, of course, they're going to be there. And, of course, they're going to be, well, not thriving, obviously, but they're going to be there and they're going to be allowed to occupy some space in the political, in the public sphere. And that's it. Now, then you have the real, oh, well, I don't like this uh, notion of the real left, but let's say that, as, as Arto put it, the, the transformative, the innovative left. Uh, well, you have them. And of course, they have to do, they're going to be smaller because their actions, they always go against the grain, against the money, against the existing structures, against the so-called civic society. Blech. I hate the notion civic society. Like this is, this is reactionary nonsense. And, and like, you know, uh, you go against the money. You go against, uh, you know, the dominating uh, political trends, philosophical trends, you know, the general understanding and perception of reality. So, of course, it's going to be difficult. Uh, and some people, a very, very tiny portion of people, they make it even more difficult uh, for themselves by embracing anti-communism for reasons which I cannot understand. So this is my my very quick answer. And then, Arto, please go ahead. And... Yeah, I think, uh, for me at least, in my observation... By the way, and, and, and by the way, just before you say anything, Arto, what Boyan just described, that's what happened to Ralph Nader when he tried to run for uh, president uh, two or three times. That's literally what happened. It was his own allies, his own comrades that, 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 that you know, kneecapped him, propped up the most right wing of the Democrats, and we're still in this ongoing vicious cycle. So, yeah. Anyways. I think the, the left was anti, became anti-communist in, in the West, primarily like uh, to follow Boyan's, it was brutally suppressed and destroyed. The, the parts that were the transformative left. So it's very difficult to be a leftist, uh, to be a re- communist or, or, or transformative socialist or a revolutionary socialist in the, the, the British Empire, the United States. These really powerful, they're really powerful states dominated by their respective capitalist classes, transnational capitalist classes. So I, with massive police forces. And as Yuri, you said, COINTELPRO, uh, shows us that the uh, anti-commun the, that the communist left uh, was brutally suppressed and successfully repressed, uh, repressed physically, and uh, physically, institutionally, uh, intellectually, in every possible way, with great effectiveness and loss of life. Uh, and I think one of the symptoms of that we see today in unions, and for example, in the United States, there's not a single union, with the exception of the IW, uh, internet, uh, IWW. Uh, and a few other few unions like the Longshoremen, there's not a single large union that is affiliated with a political organization. Anywhere else in the world, in France, and you know, you have unions that are just structural fronts or organizations of a broader political or organization, a political party that might be in parliament or has some real social presence in society outside of the narrow workplace that that union is defending. In the United States, you have corporate unionism. You have unions that are detached from uh, uh, political structures. And in fact, they're closely allied, uh, detached from working class or socialist political structures. And in fact, they're 100% aligned with the Democratic Party, which is a capitalist bourgeois party. So in other words, you, uh, that's the symptom of the, how destroyed the American left is. And in that destroyed function, it can only function as an anti-communist left, a fake left. A left that is just function is to confuse its members and to make socialist politics a caricature. You know, I think it's just a function of repression that's very accurate. Contrary yeah, to the popular say, myth, 
you know, of, of democracy and freedom yeah. of speech. But so. I also want to say that I think it, it is a function of repression, but I think it's also a function to a large extent, unfortunately, today, not in the past when they were repressed so brutally, it's a function of ignorance. And, you yeah. know, I mean, many leftist activists are unfortunately ignorant, you know, because they want to be ignorant. I mean, there is so much literature. There is so much. There are podcasts. There are lectures. There are all kinds of things you can reach out to, you know, our channel, Yuri's channel, all kinds of places, you know, you carry in your pocket a, a, a portable device, which you use as your phone often, which gives you access to 90% of the knowledge that was gathered over the millions of years of human existence, right? And, you know, if you choose to go there and to use it for the purpose of uh, uh, discovering some of this knowledge that was collected, you will, you will, you will end up opening many doors for yourselves. And I think that if there is any advice that we can give to any like east, le- east, west, wherever anti-communist leftists or people who are confused about communism, about the past of the of the left, about all those things, use your phone. <laughs> or you, you know, use your mobile device, use your computer, you know, and, and go and see some things which are really, really mm, interesting, educative, informative, and are a matter of public record. You know, well, 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 you know, Ralph Nader often says breaking through power is easier than you think. Also, decolonizing your mind is also much easier than uh, is, is, is also easier. Ask yourself than... the question. This is very important. I remember having learned that from the Stoics. Uh, well, of course, not directly. <laughs> I mean, they lived thousands of years ago. But I learned that learning that from Stoic literature uh, when I was sort of developing my interest in philosophy uh, when I was in high school. Then... Uh, you know, there, there is this question. I think it comes from the uh, from um, uh, from meditations uh, written by Marcus Aurelius. I think it's from there. Uh, but uh, there was like, when you are confused, I'm quoting from memory. When you're confused, always ask yourself the question: Why are you thinking this? Yeah. What is the reason that you're thinking that way? Is there anything behind it that you can examine and figure out? Because it could be just a random stream of thought, which you can ignore then. Or it could be something that is real, but it could be, you know, manipulative, uh, manipulated or it could be, you know, based on false premises. It could, so, you know, this is something that it's very easy to forget and it's very difficult to sort of maintain as a kind of, you know, mental awareness, which I think is good for everyone. Why am I thinking this? So when you are confused, and you are thinking something, ask yourself, why are you thinking this? And if you can't find answers, go to the internet and find some sources. <laughs> they will help you. I'm telling you. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, uh, before but before we sign off, I just want to say uh, that this will be the first of many conversations that we're going to be having, not just on the barricade, which is the most important place to have this conversation for our Eastern European audience and also our uh, North American uh, left-leaning audience. But... Uh, but yeah, no, this will be the first of many conversations. And sure. thank you to both Boyan and uh, Maria for, 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 for not only hosting this, but uh, getting me in conversation with uh, Arto and uh, who I'm going to have to have on my program in the future. <laughs> so, sure. Boyan, sign us off. Right. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much, everyone. Uh, thanks for watching. Uh, thanks for being with us. Uh, and please go ahead and support us if to the extent that you feel you can afford. You can do that via Substack by purchasing a paid subscription. You can do that via PayPal or Patreon. You will find all the necessary links in the description box of every episode that we publish. Uh, and right. That's it. Uh, you know, lo- <laughs> let's uh, let's. Let's stay healthy. Let's keep fighting and uh, see you in the next uh, in the next episode.